The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 12, 22 through 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. My name is Richie Sessions. I am... uh the RUF, the Reform University Fellowship Campus Minister at Vanderbilt, and I am your guest preacher today. And the passage that you just heard read, to me, is the scariest, it's like the scariest passage in the whole Bible. You've heard of like an elephant in the room, you know, an elephant in the room is like there's obviously an issue that at Christmas that your family's not talking about, right? There's an elephant in this passage, and it's what has been referred to as the unpardonable sin. It is one that has troubled and disturbed many, many Christians down through church history. Me included. And uh, we're going to talk about it. I've never heard a sermon on the unpardonable sin, and now I know why. It's one of those like, it's one of those passages you just kind of want to like, oh, whoops, I forgot to talk about that one. Um, <laughs> preachers do that, you know, oops, uh, we'll get it next year. Um, but I want you to see something. If, you, if we really dig in this, it, it's, it's a difficult passage, but what you're going to find is some rare jewels of God's goodness and love. Um, the man who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, a man named John Bunyan, I referred to him as Paul Bunyan in the first service. <laughs> Paul Bunyan is the guy with the, with the axe and the blue ox. Um, John Bunyan, it's a little comic relief. John Bunyan 
wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he thought he had committed the unpardonable sin, and he was obsessed with it and was enslaved by it. And so here I want to do three things today. The first thing, I want to bring comfort to those of us that think maybe we've committed it. I want to bring comfort. And then, and then, I, want to, and then I want to show the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And then so what? What do we do with that? Comfort, contrast, so what? So here's the first one, comfort. The comfort. I want to bring comfort for those of you who have read a passage like this and you're sensitive and you're introspective and you always think you're sort of terminally unique. Some of you, that like surely the fine print, I'm the fine print, I'm the exception. No, you're not, I am. Right? I want to bring comfort for those, but then broader and even in general, comfort for all of us who just sin a bunch. Right? Just comfort for just sinners. So if you fit in either of those two categories, tune in. So let's look at verses 31 and 32 of our passage, 1231. Let's look at the elephant. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, in seminary, we were, as we studied Greek, seminary is uh, it's grad school for preachers. And so in seminary, we studied Greek, and we, always, we were taught to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And so Jesus says, therefore, he's talking about a greater context of the whole passage. And not just that context of the passage to understand the, unpar- quote, the unpardonable sin. You have to understand the, the context of the passage, but then the broader context, the whole gospel of Matthew, and then the broader context of Scripture itself. And Ed Welch, who is a Christian counselor and a Bible teacher scholar, uh, has some really helpful things to say about this. And so we're standing on the shoulder of giants, and I'm, I'm going to give you what he said. Because he dealt with a lot of people who struggle with this. He said the, peop- the leaders in the context of this passage and in the context of Matthew are the audience, the primary audience. Matthew's gospel never has one good word to say about leaders. The severe language of his gospel is always directed against the leaders, and in this case, and most importantly, and most often, the Pharisees, not the people. So in the context of this passage, the common people were never recipients of such rebukes. The Pharisees not only hardened their hearts against Jesus and against his gospel, but they were turning other people away, trying to turn other people away from Jesus. It's one thing to turn away from Jesus. It's another thing to to claim to be God's spokesman and then turn other people away from Jesus. So throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the battle lines are drawn. The leaders are resolute in their antagonism toward Jesus. And so every single mention of the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew is negative. It's negative. It's negative. So you have to understand, the first and foremost, this is directed at the leaders of church, and primarily the leaders of church in that time, is what Ed Welch says. But even broader than that, the message of Matthew's Gospel And the message of the gospel and of all of scripture is that God forgives sins, period. So much so that chapter 1, verse 21 of the gospel of Matthew, 
when the angel comes and appears to Mary and says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins? Here's what he's saying. His name is forgiveness of sins. So much so that Jesus Christ's entire ministry is marked by the forgiveness of sins. At one point, there is a man who is let down in a hole, from a hole in the roof who is a paralytic, and his friends let him down on a mat that he spent most of his life on. And he's let down in front of, the Jesus, in, in front of Jesus in the room, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. That's an interesting thing to say to someone who's a paralyzed person, right? You could be like, thank you? But <laughs> your sins are forgiven, and then everybody gets really mad. The Pharisees get really, really mad. And he says, I'll show you that I have the authority, the exousia, executive power to forgive sins. Get up. And so he gets up, folds up his mat, and he walks out of the room. Because Jesus is saying his primary ministry is to heal the breach that sin has brought. So much so that his very blood means forgiveness. This man is forgiveness. His blood is forgiveness. And so when you come here, you think, what about my sin? What about my sin? And no, surely not this sin. Here's the thing. There are no exceptions. The sin, the unpardonable sin is to reject God's forgiveness at the end of the day. When you ask for forgiveness from God, which is the opposite of what the, the Pharisees wanted, they did not want forgiveness. They hated Jesus and they wanted other people to hate Jesus too. They wanted the opposite of forgiveness and they didn't even know they were calling God's judgment upon their heads. When you ask for forgiveness, God forgives. Why? That's his name. It's fundamental to the gospel of Christ. What he's talking about here is a persistent blasphemy, whether than even one blasphemous moment or one random thought that you've had or one horrible, outrageous thought that just sort of injects your mind. Anybody else been there? And the more I think, I don't have that thought. And they were like, well, yeah, you just did. Well, what you just did? Well, who had it then? And then you had this one-way ticket to crazy town. That's what I tell people. <laughs> one-way ticket, because you're limping back. You go one way. Comfort my people. This is the word. Over and over again, I was thinking of Isaiah 40, when God said, comfort my people. Comfort my people with God's truth. If you dig in the scripture, you start realizing, even in the context of Matthew, in the context of the gospel, if you want forgiveness, you got forgiveness. It is your very sin that brought Jesus here. You know, we know John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? But John 3.17, why don't we know that? He says, for God did not send the son in the world to condemn the world, but that through the son that we might be redeemed, saved. There's another uh, theologian, so don't take my word for it. Take Ed Welch's, who's like older and smarter. Second, a guy named Louis Burkhoff, who wrote a systematic theology. And for years, Burkhoff's systematic theology, which is a big tome, we used to call it the, the big blue sleeping pill, because it, is, because it is so exhaustive, it is so dry, it is so systematic, and it is Dutch accurate. Yes. He has like that kind of precision. And so here's what he says about it. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what he says. 
The, the, what's called the unpardonable sin is a decided slandering of the Holy Spirit. It is an audacious declaration of the, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the abyss. It is that the truth is a lie and that Christ is Satan. The root of this is the conscious and deliberate hatred of God and all that is recognized as divine. And so listen to me, person that thinks you're an exception, that think you've committed this or at one point you won't even face it. Listen, listen to me. Have you ever looked at the works of God and systematically and persistently called them the works of Satan? Cheer up. Have you ever attributed the works of God to the works of the devil persistently and in your face? Have you done that over and over and over again and then wanted to lead other people to do that? No, you haven't done that? You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. But that's not all. J.I. Packer says in his concise theology, no slouch, J.I. Packer, Christians who fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin show by their very anxiety they have not done so. Persons who have committed it are unremorseful and unconcerned. So if you're worried that you've committed it, you haven't. I wish so much 15 years ago someone would have told me this. Like I was in seminary, really study, studying this passage for the first time. When I get to seminary, I'm like, uh, and I felt like everyone else already knew the answer to it. They're unaware, the people they've committed are, are ordinarily unaware that they've done so and the, and the fate that they've sentenced themselves to. Listen to what Packer says. Jesus saw that the Pharisees were getting close to committing this sin. He's still going after them because his name is forgiveness. And so what does that mean for us? It means stop making more of your sin than Jesus does. Stop saying that there are sins that he can't forgive. Stop, stop allowing the voice of accusation and condemnation that pulls up all of those sins over and over and over again and said, look at this one. You've got sins with names and dates like I do. You have those special sins like the ones in Sharpie, right? The big ones that you look and say, surely he can never forgive me of those. And it's just you and the, and the demon and the devil just going round and round and you're like, He's saying, you're worthless, you're a sinful. And I was like, yes, yes, I think I agree with you. But here's what you start doing. Take it up with Jesus, the king of the universe, whose name means salvation. He lives to forgive. Bring every single one of them out. Stop explaining it away. Stop blaming other people. Just bring it all out. Open all the closets. Open the blinds. Open the windows. And every single one of the horrible things that you did yesterday, the day before, the month before, why don't we just open them all out? The big ones, the little ones, the weird ones, the nasty ones, the screwed up ones, all the ones. We just bring them all out and say, Jesus, can you take this? And he's like, that's my name. That's my blood. For. That's what my blood's for. How big is your Jesus? See, here's the problem. In the church, we have a little Jesus. We have a nice, neat, little prude Jesus. And we have big sin. That's why we're so miserable. That's why there's no joy. <laughs> also, remember this. The Holy Spirit never condemns. I had a counselor look at me one time. He says, Rich, you're full of self-condemnation. You're just so full of self-condemnation. He says, that's not the Holy Spirit. And I was like, well, I went to seminary, I'm reformed, I'm PCA pastor, psychologist. And he said, he said to me, here's what he said, the Spirit doesn't condemn, the Spirit convicts to lead you to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. So if you hear a voice of condemnation, it's not coming from God. I mean, 
how long do we just listen? We've listened to, some of us have listened so long to voices of condemnation that have come from the past, people on earth that come from spiritual forces which are even more powerful and invisible, right? We've listened to condemnation, condemnation for so long, we think it's true. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said that one of the reasons we're so miserable is because we just listen to ourselves. We never talk back to ourselves. We're just sitting there listening. And so here's what you say is, you can just say the name Jesus in the face of condemnation. You can say the blood of Christ cleanses all from all sin. You can say, yes, I am a sinner. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the sin within, upward I look, I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. He's satisfied, you're not, he is. Get over it. To look on him and pardon me. Comfort. Comfort. Comfort comes from you being honest about how simple you really are, not running from it. It's about, it's about, it's about getting dirtier so that you can experience his grace. How big a Jesus you got? If you don't have a big Jesus, that's scary. Here's the second thing, contrast. Let's contrast the kingdom. What Jesus Christ is doing here in this passage is he's, con- he's making a contrast. He's exposing the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God in a brilliant way. So all this talk about um, the kingdom cannot be divided, right? That's a really famous thing. A lot of people have said that through here. So Jesus said it first. You know, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Here's what he's saying. He's exposing how lame their, by the way, how lame their argument is. Jesus heals a blind, mute man. And they say, like, he did that by the devil. Jesus was like, but he was possessed by the devil. That's what he's saying. Like, but he, but he was, and he just stops and he goes, the devil's not going to cast out the devil? That's not a thing. And so either the devil casts out the devil, which is not a thing, or he says the kingdom has come. See, he's exposing the lies So much so that this man, look, this man is a picture of the kingdom of darkness because he is blind and mute. That's what the devil does. It says that he's demon-oppressed. Demon-oppressed. Demon-oppression looks like people who are literally physically blind and mute and spiritually blind and mute. Could you imagine what it would have been like? In the first century in the ancient world, before there were social services of any kind, to be blind and mute? Not just that. The reason you're blind and mute is because of the devil. You're an outcast to the outcast. But that's what what the devil does. His kingdom of darkness, or as Paul calls it in in Colossians 1.13, the dominion of darkness is about silence. It's about oppression. He is the oppressor, right? And what does this word oppression, demon oppress, the word oppression means? Here's what the word means, literally. Persecution, abuse, maltreatment, subjection, subjugation, cruelty, brutality, injustice, hardship, suffering, misery, repression, and suppression. It's the beginning of hell itself. That's the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus was just uncovering it for everybody to see. Y'all know what it's like. You know what it's like. Some of you know what it's like to be dehumanized, to be mocked, to be bullied, to be made fun of. Those are sparks flying off the kingdom of darkness. Destroyer of all that is good, all that is beautiful. 
taking our voices away from us, taking our sight away from us. And he's the deceiver. He lies about you and he lies about your wife and he lies about your family and he lies about your future. He gets us to do stupid things and mo- because he lies about God. Every sin that we commit, let's just say this, bold statement, I'm a guest preacher, get over it. <laughs> Every sin is because we believe a lie about God. Like that's the original sin is Satan's going like, come on, he's holding off. He's holding out on you. God's not good. He doesn't care about you. He's not good. And so every dumb thing we do is that we become our own God. And so we wreck our lives thinking that we're saving our lives. It's the insanity of it because he's the deceiver. And so here's what his kingdom is. His kingdom in any form, think, think about this as you go about the week. The kingdom of darkness looks like this. Regardless if you find it at McDonald's or you find it at the hospital or you find it in your office or you find it in your home, it looks like this. It is an organized, well-resourced assault of darkness, silence, death, and dehumanization. It is ugliness and it's fear and it's accusation. It, 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 all it wants to do is put us in darkness forever. That's what it does. But it's disguised. This is the greatest trick. This is why he is superhuman and brilliant, the evil one. It always looks good at first. It always looks attractive. It never presents itself. How about this? It presents itself like the Pharisees. It presents itself in morality, and it presents itself. It looks so good and clean and nice and and attractive. It's almost like... The devil knows whatever is going to get you, whatever looks good to you, he's going to dress it up in that. But let's think about the kingdom of God, the contrast. Look at verse 22, 23, if you have your Bibles open. A demon possessed, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? And here's what that meant. Is this the one? And the word healing here is, is the opposite, for our sake, the opposite of the word oppressed. The word healing here means to heal, to cure, to take care of. It means to take care of, that's what Jesus is doing, to this outcast of an outcast. He heals him. That's what he did. That's what he's doing at a micro and a macro level. That's Jesus. He's healing relationships, and he's healing hearts, and he's healing minds, and he's healing bodies because he's all about healing. Healing is just coursing through his being. He heals this man because he is a mighty fortress of healing. And think about what it would have been like for this guy to talk. Like, that day, he was blind and mute, an outcast of outcasts who was a walking nightmare. And then Jesus heals this man, and instantly he's talking. He's like going around going like, check this out, I'm talking right now. And I, I can see, I can see, the, I can see the sun. I can see my family. I, I can see this man who healed me. That's what he's doing both physically and spiritually right this minute. You know, that was his first sermon. His first sermon that he preached in Nazareth and they wanted to throw him off a cliff for it. How about that? I'm going to preach in my hometown in February. I hope that doesn't happen. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says. It's from the book of Isaiah. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. Not good advice. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight for the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in every single ugly spot on this earth. That's what he's about. His kingdom is not about lies, it's about the truth. It's not about death, it's about life. It's not about accusations, it's about pardon and advocacy. You get at the core of Jesus, you get a hero king, a brother, a friend, a lover, whose very guts are about the love that's going to bring the world back to life. That's why he died and rose from the dead. He is shalom. He is shalom. You know, that's what Paul calls him in Ephesians 2. He himself is peace. He is peace. He is, what is shalom? Shalom is flourishing. Listen to James K. Smith's definition of this. Shalom is the flourishing that we imagine in a visceral, favorite word, often unarticulated, vague way, yet an attractive sense of where happiness is found. It is the vision of which Cosette talks, sings about her castle on a cloud. Most of us travel through life with less fanciful visions luring us onward. Such tacit, unconscious visions are no less powerful. To be human, we could say, is to desire the kingdom. Some kingdom, to call it a kingdom, means that it's not just some private Eden, some individual nirvana, but that we all live and long for a social vision of what we think society should look like. And Jesus is right there in this town, and he says, the kingdom has come. Did you hear that? It has come upon us. Do we live like the kingdom has come upon us? Now realize in all of its fulfillment, its future, but he says the kingdom has come. The first fruits are growing. So what do we do with that? Close with application. First thing is, there's no neutrality. I talk to students all the time about Jesus. People exploring Christianity. A lot of students are asking questions about well, about who Jesus is and about Christianity and we're talking about the gospel and they'll come to me and I'll ask them about what do you think about Jesus Christ of the Bible and I've never had a student say one negative thing about Jesus ever ever not even close they're like he's so wise he was so good he was a great teacher and these are non-Christian students not churchy students church students from all over the place that aren't giving me like churchy answers they're going like he was obviously a great man there's no question about it They'll never say anything negative about him, but then I'll, have to, I'll often say to them, how do you feel about when he said he was God? Because he did it like a lot, a lot. Like he would, I'll say that, like he said he was God. And didn't he just say he was God, he would double down and say like, I am, I am Yahweh, which, which was a word that was so sacred that the, the, the ancient Hebrews wouldn't even say the word. He would say like, I am Yahweh. I am the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of the law and prophets. I'm the king of the universe. I'm the one and only. They're like, he's a great guy. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, let's be honest about this. If he claimed to be God, now I'm not going to do the lion, lunatic, Lord thing. I know that's really, really helpful. He could be a lot of things. But if he's lying, 
He's not great. In other words, if Jesus, and he clearly said that he was God, so much so that, that there is historical evidence that they killed this man for blasphemy because he claimed to be God, period. Now, if he isn't God, he's a liar? Yeah. Delusional? Yeah. Not great. And so here's the point. No neutrality. You have to crown him or kill him. You can't just like Jesus. I know that he's like wildly offensive. And here's why I can say it, and it's wildly offensive. It also can wildly save your soul. It, it, like, you can dislike me. You can probably, all of you, half of you, beat me up, beat me in an argument. But Jesus Christ claimed to be God, and he's either God or he's a, he is something else. And it's not good. And so you've got to crown him or kill him. What was fascinating about the Pharisees is they saw it and they said, kill him, he's a devil. They made a decision. Which leads us to our final point. The kingdom of Christ and his claims of deity and the forgiveness of sins is not a suggestion in the New Testament. It is a command. What? Like, I'm going to say that again. It is not a suggestion. It is a command from the king that you repent and believe that Jesus is the king. That is the most non-21st century thing I could possibly say. And I, I, like, honestly, like I hope that hits you in an offensive way because that's what kings did. In the ancient world, kings were like, like no one would be offended. We're like, he's the king. We're like, we're like whoa, 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 that's not very democratic. I was like, that's a king. Just good news, this king is good. He's good, he's great. So much so that the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 is in Athens, which was like New York and Cambridge and Oxford and all the smart places you can imagine all wrapped into one. That was it in the ancient world. And here is, Jesus, here is Paul quoting the Greeks. He's quoting their poets. He's talking about all these things, and they're having a debate about religion. What, what about this, or what about this, or what about this? And Paul is actually, he's actually being very uh, relevant by, by doing this. He's talking about this unknown God. They have a statue to an unknown God. They're all these different, and he says, like, he, he, he quotes their poets. He's, he's with them, in other words. He listens to them. He goes on their turf. But then he says this. Talk about a, a scratch across the record. He said, he says, I'll quote one of your poets, for we, in, we are indeed God's offspring. But being God's offspring, we ought to not think, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Or that he's an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says this, the times of ignorance, and this is to us right the second. The times of ignorance, God has overlooked. But now he commands, as an order, all people to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. In righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Crown him or kill him. Okay, so what do we do with that? Here. It can clean you up. Here's what that means. Nothing will clean and cleanse your perspective filter about what's important with life. What matters. If Jesus is the king... His kingdom and the prospering of that kingdom is it. 
That's it. Nothing brings, and I'll use a corporate word, alignment. Nothing brings alignment like the king of the universe. That you must be reconciled to the king of the universe on his terms. Good news, his terms are his, is his blood. That you drink and you eat his body. And you will be home one day. And there's hope. And darkness doesn't win. Nor does death or evil. See, I think a lot of my life I've been playing Nerf ball. You know Nerf ball? It was big in the 80s. My favorite time to play Nerf ball was at the end of the end zone. In high, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in fourth, fifth grade, before we played, we used to go to the high school football games, Little Rock, that's what you did. We went to the high school football games, and me and my buddies would play and get so disgustingly sweaty, play Nerf ball at the end of the end zone. That's what we did. And it was like, to us, it was the Super Bowl. We're talking ripped shirts, uh, rugby shirts. You remember the rugby's? Or like those shirts, and then like Levi tough skin jeans, uh, and, 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 and just going at it and really getting into it. But realizing, stepping back, that was really cute, but it was really serious to me. There was actually a real football game that was going on. <laughs> we're playing Nerf ball. No ref. No coaches. This was our, these were our plays. Hey! That was our play. <laughs> that's the play. Hey, you didn't pass to me ever. Like, that's our play. That's our offense. That's our offense. But like right next to us, there were lights, cameras, action. There was a winner and there was a loser. And here's the thing. You've got to get off center with Jesus Christ. You really do need to deal with the claims of Jesus Christ. It is totally offensive. He's the king of the universe. Are you playing Nerf ball in life? Are you thinking some things are really important? Are you living a lie thinking that there's some destination that you're going to find in this world? That's a lie. That's not from the kingdom of light. That's from the kingdom of darkness. What does it look like for us to get honest about God and to really take Jesus at his word and stop playing religion and submit to the king of the universe? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the comfort that your word gives us. Thank you for the command that your word gives us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and saving us. It's in your name we pray.